0: Guy Adami here and you're listening to a special audio broadcast of MKT. That's Market Call folks. It's a video series Dan and I do live at 1 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Today I was joined by my on the tape co-host Danny Moses. We talked about the Fed meeting, volatility exploding out there and of course AMC buying a stake in a gold miner. Go figure. We hope you enjoyed listening and if you do Be sure to follow at Call on Twitter and watch our show on Risk Reversal's YouTube page. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape.
1: How the heck are you? It's market call. It's Tuesday, March 22nd. I'm Dan Nathan. Today I am joined by Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. You know him. He was on market call with us yesterday. He's filling in for Guy Adami, who is taking the day off. It's not because he doesn't love you. He's just got something really important to do. Today's market call is brought to you by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, by Open Exchange, because they manage virtual meetings. That matter. Carter Braxtonworth, welcome to a second consecutive day of market call. How are you, buddy?
2: That's right. That's right. The doubleheader, back to back. It's all good and lots well, going on as always.
1: So, you know, maybe we'll do a day night doubleheader if our friends at Open Exchange could work that out for us. I mean, it's almost baseball season here and I got to be, able, I-, I could guarantee less the baseball season here but let's talk about the markets because I mean what's going on right now you know you and I you know we've been in the markets a long time and obviously Guy you know we talk about this a lot is like that kind of whole notion of overshooting to the downside overshooting to the upside and if you have conviction about direction that can be really hard on days like today you know we've had this kind of steady march higher since we had that Fed rate hike the first time since 2019 which was was very well telegraphed. Markets sold off into it. The stock market rates rallied into it. We saw commodities rallying into it. And now we're seeing a bit of a reversal. What's your take here? I know we talked a little bit about the same thing yesterday, but here we are right now with the S&P up 1%, the NASDAQ up 1.5%. What's your take here?
2: And right, so the, the the almost unanswerable question or the million dollar question is, is it the current strength, Yeah, a rally, in a bear market, or is it the beginning of a more enduring move higher, which is to say that the lows are in and that one is right to be more aggressive on the long side. And I'll just, I can speak for myself, but I think, frankly, I'm speaking for anyone who wants to be candid and, and, and sort of forthright. Nobody knows, Yeah. <laughs> but come on. And maybe some of the gods know, who's that? Yeah. The gods being George Soros or, or yeah. some of the great Titans. But at the end of the day, they don't know either. So we're all in the dark. We use our tools. We look at certain technical indicators. We look at levels. People track sentiment. And, and then from there, you take your chances. At the end of the day, what we do know is obviously one week ago, the damage done to not so much the indices themselves, but to the average rank and file stock was substantial. Consider this, a statistic that we've discussed before together right here in this venue. The Russell 3000 is the the most broad aggregate we have, representing 98% of the investable capital in the United States. And just as of last Friday, 46%. So let's call that 50, one out of two of all stocks in the index had lost 30% of their value. A third had lost 40%. And so the bull could say, we had our bear internally, however you want to call it, and that that it therefore was due for this kind of washout, a bounce. The bear would say, can you really fix it? Two years of excess yeah. with a 12-week, 15% sell-off in the S&P. And yeah. They,
1: you know, that, and that's that, it.
2: And that's where we stayed. And nobody knows the answer. Only price will help us figure it
1: out. Well, that's the $30 trillion question. We're going to drill down on the S&P and the NASDAQ in a couple minutes here, but we got to start to figure out the stock market. you got to figure out what's going on with yields here. And again, like we just said, you know, this was telegraphed, that rate hike. And what I think surprised some investors yesterday was when Fed Chair Powell just days after their meeting last week, where they did have that first rate increase, suggesting that they are going to take the necessary steps, to, obviously, to combat inflation. So All of a sudden, if you look at that CME FedWatch tool, it's pricing in at the next meeting, you know, a strong likelihood of a 50 basis point hike here. And I think that's really interesting when you consider the fact that, you know, our last rate hiking cycles that we were in post the financial crisis, we got very used to these 25 basis point hikes every other meeting, that sort of thing. It was kind of set it and forget it here. You know, now Goldman is saying that they see the Fed hiking by a half point at the next. Next two meetings. So got, let's just talk a little bit about those expectations. They will move around. If you remember, prior to this meeting that we just had in March, when inflation readings were running really hot, at one point we did see the pr- probability of a fifty basis point h- hike in March. It was over fifty percent. That obviously came in kind of hard once the war started. And that is the push and pull. I think that the Fed is going to have to deal with is like the forces of inflation that were left over from the p- pandemic versus the ones that are actually being amplified now by the war and the potential for that to de-escalate.
2: I mean, one thing to say, and we were just talking about uh, nobody knows. Let's just be yeah. frank about this as well. There's this great insight imputed to the Federal Reserve, the individuals, the men and yeah. women that are there or at the Treasury. Now, just to be clear, we, we, we see this all the time. Apparently, there was Transitory inflation, don't worry. And now, all of a sudden, from the so called experts, it's not their fault. They're just humans who put pants on in the morning or shirts on or whatever it is, skirts, dress. They don't have a clue. Let's remember in 2008, we were deteriorating badly. Hank Paulson, a former Goldman head, and then government officials said, We don't see any problems. How about the rating agencies, just to be clear, couldn't find their glasses, never downgraded a single company in 08 until at the bottom, I mean, it's just people like us here trying to figure it out. Because they have these rules, it doesn't make them any brighter, any smarter. And even worse, some of them are academics who have never held a paying job.
1: Yeah, well, I think your point is a good one. I mean, obviously they see a lot more data than the average citizen investing in any market here. It's just the way that they impute that data and the kind of messaging that they have about it, going back to the final financial crisis. I'd like to think that Hank Paulson knew that we had an unholy problem here. He just didn't want to kind of yell fire in a movie theater a little bit here. But Carter, let's look at yields here because the move that we've seen you know, in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has been pretty extraordinary in the last few weeks or so. And this is just telling you that market participants in the treasury market just believe the Fed that they are going to be aggressive in raising rates. And we talked yesterday about the inverted or the potential for the the two tens to invert and what that might mean as it relates to a recession. But let's talk about the 10-year yield because this is the one that I think most investors are really focused on here. And I'd love to get your take after such a sharp move.
2: Right, so as it relates to the cost, let's take 30 year fixed mortgages are now at four five up from, you know, two, eight, seven, it starts to bite at some point. But if you look at this chart, which is simply the yield chart, and there are no lines, no judgments by me or anyone. Now let's look at the next one. Let's go back and forth. There are the lines. Now those aren't manipulated. Those are mathematically parallel trends, trend lines. And just as we've ricocheted to the penny off the bottom, we have rallied right to the top. Are yields a little stretch here day to day? Sure. Could one buy a little, some TLT, that's the I shares, yeah. trade it for a bounce? I think so. It would come a long way.
1: Yeah. So let's talk. I mean, that, that, that chart, I mean, that's pretty obvious, as you say, to the penny here. I mean, it could continue to break out if the Fed were to get a bit more aggressive inflation re- readings, you know, get that much hotter here. But to your point, we're at 40 year highs. We know that all the situations, you know, that that the Fed are looking at, you know, the level of uncertainty about the war is clearly the one thing that is a bit of a monkey wrench here. But Carter, let me ask you this. I mean, what if we were to see and we're not seeing the just Yet, and I don't believe stocks are rallying and really kind of pricing this in yet. What if we were start to see a bunch of disappointing earnings here in the U.S.? What if we were to start to see a lot of disappointing economic data? Might that be the trigger for yields to come back in and starting to suggest that we could be in a stagflationary environment?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, if you don't have follow through, whether it's payrolls or whether it's earnings in the S&P, yeah. if you don't have follow through, you're going to ultimately see some uh, give back in yields uh, that would be inevitable the day to day is stretched right it's yeah. it's excessive you excessive moves down there's mean reversion excessive move up there's mean reversion
1: yeah, I guess you know, in the height of the uncertainty about the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, you know, about a month, month and a half ago, we saw the ten-year U.S. Treasury yield get as low as one six three, and I think it was pricing in a flight to quality as investors, you know, moved into U.S. Treasuries, but also the potential for slower growth because of that. And so, you know, that's the one that's going to play out over the course of this year. But I, I like that call. I think it seems like rightly contrarian at the moment. I'm um, speaking of rightly contrarian. I don't even know if I'm using those two words correctly. But David Rosenberg, who you and I both know and like a great deal of Rosenberg Research, he had this tweet earlier today. And I think this is kind of interesting. And it's a good segue to the stock market here. He said, we can take the N out of TINA. And TINA stands for there is no alternative. That's something you used to hear a lot when yields were really low for a very long period of time. With the yield on the 10-year T-note now 100 basis points greater than the S&P 500 dividend yield. We haven't seen that since December 2018, which got correct with a 32 basis point T note yield meltdown and a 9% stock market meltdown. And he's referring to that period where the 10-year US Treasury yield got above 3% for the first time in what, over a decade, right, from prior to the financial crisis. And we saw the stock market sell off 20% in about two and a half months or so, and it took the Fed doing a massive about face, getting very dovish, right? And you know, the irony is that in 2019, and we talked about it yesterday on the market call, when the yield curve inverted, right, in the summer of 2019, and we did get a recession. Now, granted, it was a black swan sort of event. What do you make of this tweet? If you can take the N, which is the no in the alternative part, what, what do you do with this here, man? Because rates going higher, it does make SP stocks look less interesting.
2: Sure. So the whole cap M model, right, all dividend discount models, all discounted cash flow models are based on a risk free rate of return and then you try to extrapolate your earnings growth, assign a multiple, et cetera, and so forth. The unknown is always, what is the risk-free rate? How do you handicap that? And basically the bottom line here is if and as rates go higher, at some point, equities have to be re-rated lower. The question is with all of those models, is they're, they're essentially based on rates at generally higher levels, that it's still a very low cost of capital, right? Uh, they're 30-year money at 3%, 10-year money at, at 2, 3, 2, 4 is still low. We shall see. My hunch is that it, it can't take much more, but for today, the S&P and markets in general are accepting this current new move to 23
1: Yeah. And that's a really important point. I mean, like, listen, you know, markets at any point are pricing in the available, you know, kind of data that they have here. And so, you know, with that kind of comment from Powell yesterday and now Wall Street, you know, strategists kind of getting on board for the potential of faster than expected rate hikes, the stock market, the S&P 500 is down five and a half percent on the year, Carter. okay, does that make, you know, a whole heck of a lot of sense when you consider it was up 26 percent with all of the help from all the monetary and all the fiscal stimulus last year and the rebound after the, the year before where we got the vaccines, right? And people started pricing in the potential for a reopen. And I know you have some charts, the S&P futures here. It just seems really kind of odd to me. We've had this sharp rally. At the lows, the S&P was down about 15% from its highs. But again, it doesn't seem like enough time has passed to say that was it.
2: Yes. And that's why this is, and you got people making big bets both ways. But what we do know, let's just Characterize it for what it is, a steep and steady advance, a major giveback, correction, dip, drawdown, sell-off, doesn't matter the nomenclature, of 14.5%, 22 on the NASDAQ. And now an important, albeit young, six sessions, an important ricochet. And the ricochet, the bounce, leaves the S&P, the futures, which you're looking at right here, right back to 150 moving average, which is now flat. Right. So you're it's a rally to a difficult level where overhead supply comes into
1: play. Yeah. And I guess the thing its funny that you say that people are making big bets. And, and so I guess the question is, is like how convicted they are. You know, what's different this time about buying the dip, as the kids say, is that, you know, when you think about, you know, what's different about buying a market that's sold off 15 percent, the S&P 500, NASDAQ 22 percent, given all of the uncertainty we have. The difference is, is that we are literally kind of start this quantitative tightening period you know that's just you know again when the market started rallying in uh, January of 2019 it did it because the Fed had a pivot towards a very dovish sort of manner here so I just I'm curious to your longer term take on the S&P futures here because I know you brought a couple charts here and at this point to me it makes no sense on a fundamental basis where the pace of in which rates are rising the uncertainty we have about economic growth the level of inflation I like to look to the charts a little bit. That's why I follow you a great deal there, Carter.
2: Yeah, and it's one of many tools. For me, it's the only tool, right? I don't do yeah. fundamentals anymore. did it uh, for years and abandoned all of that. But what we know, again, the move from the pandemic low to the highs of Gen 4 this year, and then this correction, and now this ricochet, it would leave the market at a level where I would say the minimum, if one bought well or added well two weeks ago, one week ago, it takes some of that off. Right. If one is doesn't do much anyway, movement, you write some calls against your positions. But the sequence of a massive collapse, news related, of course, a pandemic, an equally impressive recovery and massive move to new all time highs, also news related, government induced. And then a a crack like this, where basically half of all stocks lose 30 percent of their value or thereabouts. And then a ricochet. That sequence, as I just described, it leaves the market at a difficult level and taking measures or taking advantage of the recovery the bounce makes sense to me
1: yeah here's a question i have from a viewer right now from t's trade t e e s trade here? What early sign would you look for to be able to tell if this is a bear market rally versus a true change in trend? And that's a really good question. Carter, my quick question to you as possibly an answer to this is that, you know, when I look at that chart that you just posted there, the series of lows that we made in January, February, we didn't make a new one in March, which you mentioned yesterday on the market call. But those lows were below last year's, you know, that last low that we had before the market took off to a new high in the fall. Does that help answer that question, making a new series of lows? Like, so for instance, if we were to go back and take out the March and the February lows, then that was obviously just a bear market rally.
2: Right. So we took out, we went lower than those October, September, October lows. But the sequence on a shorter term basis has been interrupted. We're not coming from a new low. Right now, this current rally started from a higher low, the higher than the Feb 24th low. So those plunge lows you see, that's Jan 24. We made a new low exactly a month later, Feb 24. And then this rally, which is now up against the 100 moving average, has not come from a new low. It's not enough to suggest that the sequence change, but it has to be noted.
1: Yeah. Here's a good question from Robert Byers from Twitter here. He says, typically, how long do cyclical bear markets last during secular bull markets? Now, here's the way I think you and I would both agree that we are clearly in a secular bull market. Okay, right. And and you know, like unless something is totally broken, and could something be totally broken if we and I don't like to use this, you know, kind of term lightly, if there was a world war, you know, I mean if there was a, you know, massive disconnect between the access to kind of commodities and food and, you know, supply chains and all that sort of stuff i mean that would obviously break what i would think would be a bull market cycle in equities and like here but you know for me what i think is interesting is that time okay and you and I kind of addressed this a little bit you know the question is about time and i go back to you know the highs were put in, in march of 2000 in the s&p and the nasdaq we didn't bottom out until october of 02 the highs were put in november of 2007 in the major indices in the financial crisis or into it and they didn't bottom until april of 09 and which is why i don't look at the pandemic i think about all the stimulus that we had that doesn't really kind of line up if you think about, you know, we had a very short bear market. So I'm curious: like, how do you think about time in this scenario? Because, like you said, we have a lot of damage done in a very short period of time. But given the rate environment we're in and all the uncertainty, it doesn't seem to make a whole heck of a lot of sense that we're done yet.
2: Right. So again, the whole notion of 20% is a bear market. Nowhere is that written. I spent my life looking for it. It was made up one day, someone made it yeah. up, and it stuck, right? So what we know is there is a definition of a, of a bear market per se. 1987 was not a bear market. Yes, it, S&P was down 30 plus percent, but it ended up on the year. Meaning if you have a crash like that, it's huge loss of capital. And again, down 30% for the indices, one could say, how could you not call it a bear market? But it's no different than the pandemic. 87 was an event. The pandemic was an event. A bear market definitionally, is duration-based. And we have had, four epic ones. We've had, the, the, of course, the dot-com, right, 2000, 2002. We've had the uh, financial crisis, 2007, 2009. We had 73, 74, a real real doozy. That was two full years. All of 73, all of 74, down 50%. And of course, the depression. And, And the point is, is that at this point, is it a sill, a secular bull from the financial crisis low of '09? Sure, but these are just words, right? At the yeah. end of the day, it's about making money, and if one is in Peloton or Zoom or DocuSign bear market, bull market, hey, I just lost a fortune if I bought it at the high. It's more important to try to make money, figure out which patterns are going to be good. But as it relates to the academic, and it's a perfectly valid question, secular bull, fine. We've been in a secular bull market since the 09 low. Is this a bear market or is it a news event? We ricocheted, we sold off, government fixed it. It's all of that. Here's the most interesting of all, and this is long-term. I don't play long-term. That's not my period. I'm an intermediate player. I'm not short-term day-to-day. And not. Long- but the long-term question is, What are the returns available to the equity market looking out, you know, over a decade? Now, the reason I don't do that, because you could be dead in a decade, you know, uh, who knows? But the long cycle people do talk about that. And almost to a man, to a woman, they say returns will be muted.
1: Yeah. All right, let's look at the Nasdaq 100 the, the the futures here, the trade on the CME because this is one where, you know, for me, a large part of my career is based on the trajectory of the Nasdaq 100. I started covering tech in 1997 at a hedge fund and traded all through that bear market you just mentioned, the post.com. So, I still have a lot of scar tissue Carter from that, but when I look at this chart that you have going back to 09 in the Nasdaq 100 futures year, I oh, man, I see that uptrend all all the way down there near 10,000 and you know we obviously got above the upper end of that band here a little bit but if it were rejected at that higher band i mean where is your target to the downside in the nasdaq 100
2: right so it's it's a fun chart right i mean first of all again mathematically parallel lines and we know that the excess off of the of the pandemic low allowed this index to move above the upper band excess And now we've corrected, sold off back into the channel. And this rally, I think what you're implying in is if and as it were to get back to the underside of the upper band, that's a key level to watch. More often than not, when you do do that, you struggle.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, that to me, you know, rejection there. And I think you just kind of have to sell rallies until you see something that looks like 12,000. But that's me. And that's my bearish self. Here's one that's been a great trader, Carter. And you've actually had a couple of really great calls on oil. And, you know, the most recent one is you thought that was clearly a blow off top. You nearly called it to the day. We have the NYMEX oil futures going back to 2003. So almost 20 years encapsulates that, you know, that massive decline we had during the financial crisis, the massive decline that we had when the Fed came off ZERP and QE and 14, 15 into the lows in and 16, and obviously everything in the pandemic here. What's your take on this one here? There's obviously that overshoot that we saw during the financial crisis, maybe an overshoot that we just saw. Where would your target be if we were to stay below those 2011, 12, 13 highs? Where would your target be on the downside?
2: Right. So one could say I drew the line arbitrarily, and to some extent, that's fair. But what I was trying to do here is to capture the meat of the range. So there are moments of excess, up or down. Obviously, you I mean, crew went negative $30 a barrel. How do you even chart that, right? But what we do know is we're back at basically the upper range. And so you see annotated there, one fifteen a barrel, plus, minus. And then at the lows, 32 a barrel. At this point, my hunch is is that the, the move and collapse of the past four weeks, 130 a barrel close to it, that those highs will stand as important highs and that actually crude is sort of where it belongs and that there isn't any discernible trade one way or the other.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, listen, you know, I don't really, you know, like you say, you only look at the technicals and and you don't really care about the fundamentals. Here's one, the COMEX gold futures. Okay. Like I don't know what the fundamentals are for gold. I know there's some industrial uses for it. I know that there's some parts of the world who find it very fashionable, not me, but this is kind of an interesting chart. Our main man, Guy Adami, has been a longstanding bull on this one. What does this look like to you? Are we banging up against resistance or is it making a bullish flag here?
2: Well, I think it's the latter, but what's important is that we uh, have a well-defined level and gold continues to try to break out. And one could say, well, this is a failed breakout. It's way too early to make that conclusion. But we do know, unlike oil, of course, it was able to make a new uh, all-time high. And the pullback is perfectly reasonable to my eye. So a much different uh, formation, much different pattern. And my inclination is to step in and buy weakness.
1: Okay. All right. Cool. Hey, listen, we got to start the hustle. You know, Guy usually does a better time on the clock here than I do, Carter. But there's a couple things in the stock market that I want to hit really quickly here. I want to move ahead to the BKX. This is the, the banking index here. And I'm not using XLF because I didn't want Berkshire, which is the highest weighted stock in the ETF that tracks the bankings, but oddly has Berkshire in there. Give me your quick take on the BKX. Last night on CNBC's Fast Money, I did this little bit on, you know, JP Morgan versus versus Wells Fargo. JP Morgan showing worse relative strength of late than Wells, which is up on the year now. It's up 11% on the year. While I think at its lows just recently, JPM was down, you know, a little more than 20% or so. I'm just curious your take on the banks because JP Morgan, obviously the exposure overseas, the unquantifiable exposure to what a global, you know, recession might look like or what's going on in Europe in particular, whereas Wells Fargo has no international exposure, but they're very exposed to U.S. consumers and housing.
2: That's right. And one way to capture that theme, just what you're saying, who has exposure, who doesn't, or who's in a better position is is the KRE, right, which is the regional bank index, which is very domestic, doesn't care to some extent or a large extent about currencies, about oil, about war, and so forth. And so a pair straight here that comes to mind from my seat is KRE long, BKX short, whereas money center banks, Citi and and JP and others are quite burdened. And there are some idiosyncratic, whether it's U.S. Bank or PNC, which act a lot better.
1: Yeah, so I drew the I drew the charts here. Yours are much better looking than mine, and they probably have much more precise levels here. I do think it's interesting that that BKX is right there at your 150-day moving average. So let's see if that is technical resistance. I want to quickly go to JP Morgan though, because look at this one. I drew a downtrend, and what I think is really important from that 170 level, Carter, that was the day that the company reported Q4 earnings. I know you don't care about things like earnings and guidance, but investors cared about their expenses in the quarter, and you saw that was a Big gap for a big money center bank on just a piece of earnings news here. You see the series of lower highs and lower lows, and it's right back at that downtrend. What's your take on JP right here?
2: Just as you've characterized it. So the sequencing is obvious or clear to the eye, a well defined series of lower highs and lower lows. And so this counter trend move, we're in a downtrend, this counter trend move up is about where one would expect the strength to abate. So if one were long, you sell calls. If one is a trader, you take the money and run. And if one's really short term, you bet short here for a pullback
1: yeah i like that and you'll be playing for like that 127 maybe a retest of those recent lows what about wells fargo this thing looks very different to me this looks much more sideways if you will right and had that break above you know what was a breakout level from early january it held that 150 day over the last couple of days and you're seeing you know outperformance i'm just curious my take on fast money last night was like keep an eye on this one because this may be a better barometer if you're talking about stagflation specifically in america here Because of their lending and their mortgages and their exposure to U.S. consumers, this might be a better tell near term.
2: Well, if you did a ratio chart of the two, of course, it would be off the charts. Wells is handily outperforming J.P. Morgan. And so if given just the choice of one versus the other, I would much rather be in Wells.
1: Okay, cool. And that, I mean, that makes total sense to me here. And I just want to rip through this one. Last week, you had a major call, a technical call. I was on vacation, but I did see the tweet and you said, this is how a bottom is made. And you basically charted square here. You see that really sharp downtrend from late November is obviously traded as high as, I don't know, 290 or something like that. Last year, it got as low as like 90 some dollars, you know, late in February here. Beautiful move. I mean, Lily, you think about that. What is that, like a 60% rally, but it's still down 55% from those highs. So you called it correctly here. Uh, maybe sees a little resistance at 150. I don't know, what's your take?
2: I, I mean, I think so. Again, if you just think about sort of the ebbs and flows, the sequencing, you're you you you're a little ahead of yourself day to day. The broader thrust is, is that it's putting in a bottom that's likely to be an important bottom and acting differently than stocks that one could consider similar, a Peloton or a Zoom and so for DocuSign.
1: All right. Well, that's a really great point. So stocks that you would consider trading similarly. Let's look at PayPal, often compared as a very similar sort of company. Look at the chart that I drew here. This is from January 2021 here. It has not broken that downtrend just yet. And so would you say, and it's obviously had a really healthy move. I think that low was 92 bucks, and here we are at 118 Is this thing something that you'd look to fade if it were to get to that downtrend in the next couple of days?
2: I think that's exactly right. So uh, when you first approach an identifiable level uh, of overhead supply or a channel, uh, you make the bet in principle that it will falter there, either back and fill, not continue higher, or back away, yes.
1: All right, so the last one I want to look at right here is Roku. Again, this is a stock that traded 490. It traded as low as, I don't know, 100 just uh, last week or so. This one is above, and this is a pretty precise line. This is just above that downtrend here. So 100 to 124. It looks like an amazing 24% rally. I can even do that math, Carter. But what would you, I mean, what would you play for this one? Is this one a move back to 150, basically fill in that gap from February that was on earnings?
2: I think that's reasonable. And, and again, one could say, okay, so you drew a line, big deal. Carter drew a line, Dan drew a line, but we have to do something, right? What are we gonna rely on the PE for this? Of course not. Whereas price the book, that's, that's out the window. So can we try to discern the beginnings of a bottom? It's often right to be late, let it continue yeah. to develop, miss some of the move. But the, the inclination here is to get in motion, small on the long side, and play for higher prices.
1: All right, man, well, listen, that was great. I really appreciate it. And I think it's important to a, yeah. like kind of refresh your call on the square, but also show a couple stocks that have had similar percentage moves to the downside and how they can actually look differently to your eyes. So we appreciate that. I also appreciate you filling in for Guy here today, Carter. It's always my pleasure to talk to you. I mean, I love talking charts with you, but I really like talking markets away from the charts there too. (laughs) And everyone
2: needs a a day off or whatever it is uh, that Guy's doing. He's
1: working, buddy. You you, you know he is. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's market call. Thanks again to our sponsors, CME Group and Open Exchange. So if you like what you saw, be sure to tune in tomorrow. We'll be back the same time, same place. Guy will be back. We'll see you then. Thank you very much, Carter.